1: giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase Mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
0: This is Talk Easy, I'm Sam Fragoso, welcome to the show. This week, I am joined by writer Anne Lamott. She's the author of best-selling books like Operating Instructions, Bird by Bird, and Traveling Mercies. Both in her fiction and nonfiction work, she tends to traffic in the messier parts of us. She writes candidly about motherhood, alcoholism, love, and faith. She has this kind of tendency of saying the unsayable of going to places most people like to avoid, which of course makes her a perfect guest for talk easy. All of these tendencies are on display in her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, which if you haven't read it already, is now available to purchase wherever you do your reading. I highly recommend it. And in the spirit of this book, this is a conversation on revival and courage. What does restoration look like? How do we heal and recover from the past year? She shares some personal stories, some from the book, all from her life, about forgiveness, regret, redemption, and what her battle with sobriety can teach all of us about healing. You know, in the past, we've sat with authors like Elizabeth Gilbert, George Saunders, Miranda July, Claudia Rankin, Gloria Steinem, Fran Lebowitz, the list goes on, and what I like to do for those of you who are new here, is to use the text as a jumping off point, which is to say, if you're reading Anne's latest book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, welcome. If you've read her work in the past, I'm glad you're here. If you've never read her work before, that's okay too. The only prerequisite for our show is that you show up, which If you're hearing this right now, you've already done. So, thank you for showing up. I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I enjoyed having it. Now, here is Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott how are you doing in this moment
2: oh i'm I'm really well currently currently i'm um I'm stable and I've had kind of an amazing day and I've gotten to see two really close friends get a little exercise and um and I do not have any interesting problems right this moment
0: how has this year treated you were you able to write over the last twelve months
2: well I finished Dust Night, Dawn, um, probably uh, April 2020. So it just takes a long time for it to be produced. So those months before publication, during, and then right after are not my most uh, productive. So I've written little things. I've written a lot of Facebook essays that I care about that I think are are important themes. But uh, I haven't started anything new, if that's what you're getting at, young man. <laughs>
0: I'm not trying to guilt trip you. <laughs> I-, I wanted to really jump into the prologue of your book. You write at the top, Where on earth do we start to get our world and joy and hope and our faith in life itself back? Where can we again find belief in redemption and confidence that our new grandchildren will have breathable air and dry land on which to thrive and raise their own families? What does this book mean to you in this moment?
2: Well, the last book was called Almost Everything, Thoughts on Hope. But I had originally called it Doomed Thoughts on Hope, but my publisher wouldn't go for it. And um but at any rate, two years ago, back in the day, I was traveling around the country giving talks at bookstores and churches and mosques and everywhere. Um on this hope book, but everywhere I went, people were just so discouraged and defeated by the by the four years of Trump and the well, it was only two years then, and the you know the UN climate change reports were just coming out, and they were, those were just devastating, really end of the world. People just felt like, where do we even start? You know, door will our kids wear gas masks? Will just so many heartbreaking things going on at the kid, the kids in cages at the border and the, you know, Australia was on fire two years ago. Do you remember that? An entire continent was on fire and then California was on fire because we had apparently not raked, raked our forest correctly, uh, we were told. And so we're not given much help because it was our fault, apparently. So we were all like a little tenser than the average bear. And I wanted to answer that question of where do we even start?
0: After writing this book, what do you think that answer looks like?
2: Well, the answer to where do we start, whether it's with getting sober or starting a new book or a new relationship or getting over one, is you start where you are. You know, you don't start in the fantasy of what you hope it will turn out to be or in the grudge and resentment about how difficult it's been and uh, you don't start in the fear of how hard it's going to be you start where you are you start where your butt is you breathe breathing consciously or intentionally connects you umbilically to something greater than your own pinball brain and then you do a little bit you know at a time and you you let yourself do it badly. You let yourself flail or fall or 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 get stuck or usually just not have a clue how it's all going to turn out. And you do it anyway. You do it afraid. You do it kind of cluelessly. But with my writing students, with Bird by Bird, I always had them put a one-inch picture frame on their desk and to just try to see, to kind of squint through an empty picture frame and see a passage or a memory or a possible opening section, and to just get that done. And then, of course, write a really god-awful first draft of it. Everything good springs from really terrible first drafts. And you you figure out one small thing you could do today that would be helpful rather than further more defeating. And you see how it goes, but you do it. You know, I don't want to sound like a Nike ad, but you just stick with it. I
0: think you're at no risk of sounding like a Nike ad. (laughs) Thank you. That brief memory, that window into the past, it seems to me that the book kind of starts with 33 years earlier in that Miami hotel. Yeah. Could you walk us through that?
2: The story uh, takes place in a airport in san diego where i've had a little tiff with my husband now you have to understand i've been married two years and one of one year was in shutdown so however well i'm doing i should get extra credit for because you couldn't have anticipated that you weren't going to be leaving the house for a lot of that time and um i'd done a a talk at a huge tented arena um, and everything was going wrong i was kind of mad at my husband because he hadn't like come crawling to me for forgiveness for having hurt my feelings. And then the, air, the the flight kept getting canceled. So it was originally seven o'clock and I'd be back in my home by 10. And then it was eight o'clock and then it was 9.30 or something. And then it was canceled till the next day. So I had a really hard time. I was in a hotel, airport, uh, airport hotel. And I remembered something um, from 1987. I got sober in 1986. And I was doing a book event in in, um, either Miami or Tampa. You've read the book more recently than I have. But I hadn't been sober very long. I was at a horrible hotel on like the 18th floor. I was exhausted. The minibar, of course, was filled with um, tiny bottles of alcohol. I hadn't been drinking for about uh, maybe eight or nine months. I was just a mess. I just felt like a mess. So I thought about jumping was, of course, my first thought. And then um, also it would mean I could get out of giving my lecture the next day. And instead, I got some sort of, like I'd call it a Holy Spirit nudge. Somebody tugged on my sleeves and said, call other alcoholics. And so I looked up the number in, in Miami for some sort of alcoholic um, line and I, I just said I hate all everything and all of life and I'm 18 floors up and my room is filled with miniature bottles of booze and they said oh well we'll just send somebody over we'll send a woman over in half hour and I said you know it's like midnight I said you're gonna send a woman over <laughs> to my hotel room and I'm very introverted so under the best of circumstances I don't want you to send a woman over to my hotel. And by God, she arrived in uh, in a pink Cadillac, as I discovered later, and with this huge bouffant, Texas, she was 25 years older than I am, but she'd been sober since before Milton Burrell, I think. And um, you know, she had this high bouffant haircut, hairstyle, like as Ann Richards said, the higher the hair, the closer to God. And she came in. And first of all, what I'd, I don't think I mentioned in the story is she called the front desk and she said, could you could please come up we don't want anything but soda and mineral water in this and can you take away all the booze and then we sat and we talked for a couple hours about how I was feeling and her similar experiences over the years and how she still hadn't picked up a drink no matter how afraid or angry or other she felt and we just talked and I got my my mojo back and then she turned back the sheets of my bed, and she put water next to my bed and helped me, instructed me to go brush my teeth and put on my jammies, and then she saw me to bed. And so when I was in this, at the airport in San Diego in this terrible mood, you know, a flight canceled three times, and my husband being um, imperfectly perfect, I remembered this Texas woman, and I turned down the sheets of my bed, and I got on my jammies, and I brushed my teeth, and I put a glass of water by my bed, and I was suddenly you know, 80% better than I'd been and 80% better on any given day is a miracle. My friend David Roach has a church he founded called the Church of 80% Sincerity. And he said 80% of anything, sincerity, honesty, kindness is just a miracle. So the stories are about how on a lot of days, we can get 80% better with having so little control over the climate. You know, there's a long chapter on what we do in the face of uh, the climate catastrophe that's going to be very, very hard to turn around. But we're very, very good at hard. You know, we stopped fascism a couple times now. We stopped smallpox. We invented the retrovirals. We antiretrovirals. So, yeah.
0: When you think back on that 30-year-old self sort of finding her footing, struggling with alcohol. Who do you see?
2: 30 years old. Oh, my God. Well, I wrote about it in Dust Night Dawn, because it. And one of the things I did, which was that I was drunk every night, and I was at the bar a lot, and I did really anything I wanted with anyone who was there. And I um, wrote about how a woman who I betrayed around that age came to a workshop I did in a bearing forgiveness you know literally in her front pocket so what I did then was uh, at 32 I was sober and shaky I was not able to write yet it took me eight or nine months and then I wrote my first sober book which was a novel called uh, all new people and then about three years later I wrote operating instructions which was my first big hit so it worked like that. It took a while to get my windshield cleaned again. And of course, if you're a writer, a musician, an actor, everybody in your field is an alcoholic and a drug addict. So you're kind of betraying the the crew. And um, I really didn't know that I would write again, but my mornings were so terrible. I was so physically ill, but I was also so spiritually like sin sick you would use in the, re- in the religious tradition. It was like I had... Swiss cheese holes inside of me of confusion and shame and betrayal and but at 30 I just felt like uh, I just kept trying to fill those Swiss cheese holes with achievement with doing better and better I had a good career I had several books published by great publishers and the holes if you're in active alcoholism they're just getting bigger and bigger no matter what you achieve, no matter if you keep your weight down, no matter if you get a really great partner, you just are, the elevator's going one direction only. And finally at 32, you know, the door keeps opening on each floor as you're going down and you look out and you can often just, um, make it work. You go, Oh, that's not that bad. Or if I ever, then I definitely would quit. And then you go down another floor and you've done what you swore you'd never do. And, but at some point you look out and you're done and you get off at that floor. I had a friend when I, a man who, when I first got sober, who said, by the end of my drinking, I was deteriorating faster than I could lower my standards. And so. That's where I was at these ages of 30 and then 32. And I needed to start learning to um, have a life without being drunk or high. I needed to learn to balance my checkbook. I, needed, I was, never made money until I was uh, my late 30s, so that was way down the road. I taught tennis and cleaned houses all those years so I could pay my way as a writer. And I just needed how, to learn how to grow up a little bit, I guess, in a nutshell.
0: In one interview, you said that I was too smart and too sensitive. I got bullied horribly. I always felt that everybody was given the owner's manual to life that one day in second grade when I was homesick. But when I drank, I felt whole. I was a desperate people pleaser.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I, um, I came from a family where there was alcoholism and black belt codependence. I'm the middle child. I have an older brother and a younger brother. And my parents really should have probably raised teacup poodles or orchids instead of children. So a lot of the taking care of everybody felt to me. So I, was t- I had a little caseload, you know, at five. I had a clipboard with four names on it. I had migraines by five. I was very sensitive. I had this crazy kinky hair and I, and I got teased really mercilessly by boys who would drive by and shout at me and, you know, and throw, throw stuff at me sometimes. And first of all, that was how I developed a sense of humor. So there was something good to be said for it, but it also just so, so trashed my soul. I felt when I got bullied like a snail that was having salt poured on it. My mother's English too, so you're not supposed to have any unpleasant emotions like, uh, anything you know? You, in in the 50s, you got sent away from the dinner table without eating if you were angry or you cried or you had any messy emotion. All I knew to do was to get everybody to love me and t- try to help everybody feel better about um, the mess of our family. <laughs> I was 35 when I was uh, discovered that a B plus was a good grade. If you got a B plus, i would say how much harder would it have been to get an A minus? But if you got an A minus. They would ask if there was still time in the quarter to get it up to an A. So you really couldn't win for losing um, in that system. And when I, after I got sober, people taught me a new system, that this peace of mind, this self-respect, um, this affection was going to be an inside job.
0: Part of building a new system also seems to be at the heart of this book, but also I think why this book is so urgent right now, because... So many people are sort of redefining what that new system can and should look like. Mm-hmm. Have you been thinking about that as this book is coming out?
2: I think we really tapped into a deeper compassion because, for those of us who were doing fine, which I was, um, you just saw these long, long lines of people, you know, two and three mile lines outside of food pantries with parents just trying to get a box of food for their kids. And I got very serious about helping food pantries. Uh, I think we got a lot more contemplative. You, there wasn't weren't very many places you could go safely, so you sat on the couch and read with the kitty, you know. And life got a lot quieter. We had to learn to pay better attention to our to our yards, you know, to our beloved people on Zoom. And and the thing that ties into what you just said is that we also had to create new, ordinary lives, right? And I say hooray for ordinary lives because that's where the the nourishment is it's not in some fantasy of what will happen once you're famous enough or you find the right person to marry or you make enough money or you get a new car you know it's going to be in the in the savoring and fully living the ordinary life that you're going to find both salvation and nourishment and all of these stories none of them are of You know, spectacular breath. They're not. It's not an action movie. You know, it's it's about uh, psychological and spiritual healing. It's about forgiveness. It's about forgiveness at the national level and at the dining room table. And of that most annoying, difficult forgiveness of all, which is of our own sometimes appalling selves. I see my life or my psyche as a garden. And so much of it was stuff that was not attractive. My parents did not want it brought up. It had to do with bad dreams or it had to do with bad thoughts and bad feelings about other people, bad um, tendencies. And so we just hide that away or bury it under the logs in the back of the yard. And then the blackberry brambles grow over it and you don't have to deal with it. And at some point you think, Something beautiful could be growing there. I could put in a pear tree, you know. I could put in a flowering pear tree. But so you have to go tear out the brambles and you have to get rid of the the wood pile which might have rats and and spiders and almost certainly does has at least mice and spiders. And one day at a time with people helping you that happens and you plant the pear tree and it's kind of amazing though. You you have to you look at and notice what was there. The blackberry brambles that died every year mulch the soil where the pear, pear tree is going to grow now. You know, and that, uh, and so little by little, it's not necessarily that I think I'm my first default fear is that I am defective or I'm not doing it well enough or that I've disappointed people, but it's usually that the you know the deep dive into this real core stuff about that turns out to just be human condition. When you're a kid and a teenager, you think it's just you and you better keep it a secret because if people knew this dark, shadowy stuff about you, they'd run screaming for their cute little lives. But as you get older, I'll tell you, I was saved in the religious sense by the women's movement. I was 16 years old when the first issue of Ms. Magazine came out, and all these women and girls were gathering around, you know, pots of lentils and saying, I have this ugliness that I've been pretending I don't have. I'm really angry. I'm really sad. I don't feel very forgiving yet. And when we were all saying it, it meant that we were sharing in it. And that once we were sharing in it, it was so much easier to accept about yourself. It's kind of a cliche, but if you want to heal it, you have to reveal it. And if you just reveal it, even to a couple of friends... It doesn't run you anymore. If it, you keep it a secret, sort of tucked away in the, in the attic, it runs you. It's right there. It has a heartbeat, you know. You can hear, you can hear what's upstairs in the attic. You hear sc- the scratching of tiny rodent feet. <laughs> and, uh, but if you go up and look or, or you, and you deal with it, then uh, maybe a little greater peace of mind.
0: Something you're kind of getting at that I think has always been helpful in your work is offering an avenue for forgiveness, and it starts with the forgiveness of self. But in this case, I really wanted you to perhaps share this story in chapter four about the woman you referenced earlier who arrives at a workshop that you're teaching. But your story with her started many years before that.
2: Well it started in my twenties when I was just we I was living in this tiny artistic community on the coast and, and I was I had a best girlfriend and we were we closed on the bar every night and we just we were we thought of ourselves as like the absolute princesses of town and all the guys loved us of course because we drank like they did and we did anything they were in the mood for and um and I really betrayed a woman that I was quite close to um, with her husband so I made amends when I got sober. I wrote a letter about how grief-struck I was by my behavior and, and 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 how cognizant I was of the damage it had done to her and her family and and just how contrite I felt and I didn't I couldn't do anything but not do it to anyone else and to hope that someday she could forgive me. And she wrote back. She's very Jewish and she wrote back from that tradition that um, she could forgive me, but that she worried I wouldn't be able to forgive myself, and um, and that when I as I wouldn't forgive myself, I was separated from both myself and from God and from and from the world, really. And it was just so profound. And so I did that work, but I didn't see her again. And then a few years ago, I was teaching one of these huge writing workshops I do once a year, and at Book Passage, and um, and she arrived, and we we're both oh. Thirty-five years older, and um, and she had brought this tiny bundle of coins. It was a nickel, a dime, and three pennies, and she said that in the Hebrew tradition, um, eighteen was a sacred number, and that you celebrate people's birthdays or bas mit- bar mitzvahs or boss mitzvahs or or anything with a nut- with something that references the number eighteen. And she'd brought me 18 cents wrapped up in scotch tape, almost like a child had made it. And she said, I just want you to carry this in your pocket just for the extra blessing of our, um, our reunion. But it was all about like some an impossible act of forgiveness that was delivered by hand with a face of love, gentle words, and 18 cents. Pretty hard to beat.
0: You're right. She spent the day with me and 150 others, one of many, scribbling and laughing in one another's company. You can't get there from where either of us was. There is no straight route. Life is so inefficient that way, and it really doesn't work for me at all. It works by spirals, squiggles, and ink blots, looping back and over and around like a child's Mobius strip. Yeah. You know, that last part dawned on me as sort of the purpose of your writing, or at least my interpretation of it, which is your ability to track and chart and pinpoint those spirals and squiggles and ink blots.
2: Thank you. That's a wonderful compliment.
0: Does it help you understand them?
2: What, Where I can see a little bit of light, <laughs> where before I felt stuck in, and in darkness is often a place where I begin my essays that uh, like, for instance, the second, I think the second story, maybe the third is totally on soul. It's on what the soul is and how we, how we wash the windows of the soul, how we um, reset the soul that can get pretty smudged by life and the endless data stream. And in it, I tell the story about one really dear friend whose daughter um, killed a, a a young person in a hit and run accident, drunk driving on New Year's Eve, and how she goes to prison. And um, and so I brought it to my Sunday school kids. who are, there's usually three of them. I go to a tiny sort of failing church, but I asked them, "Could you forgive her?" And they said, "No, um, not just for killing the, the the young man, but she she ran from it. And for me, I mean, I drove so drunk. I drove on LSD." And I'd never, as far as I know, hit anyone. But it could have happened to me. And with these kids, you can start saying, okay, well, where do we start? Where do we start with finding a a somewhat warmer, gentler heart for this girl named Allie? Well, you start where you are. Have you ever done anything that you didn't think you could be forgiven for? Yeah, well, with my mom I did. And what happened? Well really made her cry a lot and then it made me cry a lot and then I sort of did the time I was grounded for two weeks and and I said well Allie's been grounded for four years you know in a in a prison she's done her time she was dealt with by the law does that make it possible for you and little by little by little my kids could come to see that her her soul was not a bad soul. Her soul was this beautiful, clear, this maybe fitful little flame that was just beautiful, the same soul she had as a four-year-old. And and there was the beginnings of forgiveness, which is the ultimate miracle. The beginning of forgiveness is the hard part.
0: Little by little, recognizing that someone may be willing to hear you out, may be willing to, to move an inch and... As you're describing that, I have to say, even after the year we've had, where we've talked about building new systems and leaning into compassion, I haven't seen a public forgiveness work once on the internet. I haven't seen anyone be forgiven. And I wonder how we approach something like that. Redemption.
2: It's just such a crazy heightened season on the internet, isn't it? Right now with, with people being trashed and canceled and attacked. But, um, and I wish that when we sought forgiveness or reconciliation that it was going to happen tomorrow, right after lunch. But it takes time, you know, and, and it says in the book, time takes time. And I completely hate that, but it's true. There's a chapter that begins. I am waiting patiently for people to come crawling to me begging forgiveness. <laughs> and they don't, they haven't yet. You know, a couple of really God-awful boyfriends over the years and, and actually Clarence Thomas, although I'm starting to lose hope. But um, it doesn't happen that way. So so the blessing has to be, the, the prayer has to be bless them and change me. You know, in the, in the last book, on the, in the Hope book, I quoted Martin Luther King saying, Don't let them get you to hate them because if you're in hate with them and that total sheet metal lack of forgiveness then you're weakened you're no longer in your center you're no longer in your soul or your core or your heart you're in a weak unbalanced state and you get to ask yourself whether that's okay with you and if not you're the only one you're going to change. If you do change and if you release those people by blessing them in your, in your prayer life or your thought life, sometimes the damnedest things happen and, and things just get a little bit better.
0: Do you want to call up those people that, that owe you forgiveness? I can do it with you. I'd be happy to call them up. <laughs> Demand an apology on this podcast.
2: Um, No, because I, it's an inside job for me and I'm... um. It's happening, you know, over time. In recovery, people talk about life on life's terms. It's not life on Annie's terms. And so that means it's not forgiveness or, or, um, or lack of it thereof or, uh, or lugging around this stupid stuff. I'll tell you, you're, you're um, so much younger than I am. But when I got, when I turned 50, I'll be 67 next month, actually in a few weeks. Something happened. I think that by 50, everybody has lost a few people that they just absolutely couldn't live without. And so you realize how short life is and that you better get to it. You better start savoring every single day and every holy moment of being in nature or in peace with, with your precious community. And you start to realize how much stuff you have lugged around in, in the little airplane of your life and, and how much you're just done with and how sick of flying so low you are. For me, a lot of it had to do with um, things related to my ambitiousness or these resentments we've been talking about or just burdens of one kind or another. And at 50, you ha- you start having some tools to chuck them out of the airplane that has kept you flying barely over the treetops Cause you want to fly. You don't know how long you, neither, neither of us know how long either of us is going to live. You know, if we do this next year, which I'm glad to do, we're not positive. We're both here. You take a long, deep breath and you look at what the day is and what, what condition you, you're in. And if there's anything you can do, start doing or stop doing, that's going to give, that's going to alleviate your spirit. It's going to lighten your spirit. One thing that the whole book is about, since it's mostly so much about soul and 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 restoration after what we've all been through after the last 4 years and the fires and covid and what whatever we've all been through in our individual families it's so much about the the incredible blessing of service of getting out of yourself and becoming a person for others and the my my strongest philosophical understanding that if you want to have loving feelings you you don't figure that out, you, you do some loving things, some of them anonymously, and you get loving feelings. So I, I, I taught uh, one advent, I had my Sunday school kids promising to flirt with old people every day, like at Good Earth, the old people in front of you and the express line with their coupons, which means that they're gonna be there for at least 10 minutes, quibbling, and flirting with them instead of grudging them or harshing them, you say, God, I love your hat. Where could I get one? you know, or or is your dog friendly? Can I pet her? And getting some positive energy going with somebody who is mostly being ignored, who is probably invisible, and the plates of the earth just shift. I heard when I got sober, you take the action, and the insight follows. It doesn't go to happen the other way around. But I was raised by, by intellectuals who were atheists, and we worshipped breaking the code and figuring it out and, and whatnot, and it just didn't get them anywhere. And it usually doesn't get me anywhere. But if I take the action, like a really warm, friendly, giving action, then I, um, I end up in a much happier and much healthier place.
0: You write, love is giving away what you have been so freely given. No matter if you have little opinions on the recipient's personal hygiene, giving away fills the well. And it's funny, you mentioned your family and you, and you talk about your father throughout this book. And in this very same paragraph, you write, My dad took us to vigils outside the walls of San Quentin, twice during executions. He taught writing there to the inmates. Love is not packaged for individual sale. He loved these men and they loved him. In prison where it is loud and smelly and people fling feces at each other, this would be a bit of a stretch for me. The ones who got out stayed in touch with him. Do you feel like what you do in your Sunday school classes, and in turn the work you do with teenagers trying to get sober, is that you kind of taking your father's baton who helped these inmates and in carrying that tradition forward?
2: My mother taught me a passion for the underdog. Uh, when you absolutely don't know what to do, you take care of the poor, and she was not religious. And you take care of the poor, and you you, you fill a box of clo- of with really, with really decent clothes and a couple of blankets that you've just washed, and you take it to Goodwill or Salvation Army, that you just give, that you just give without wondering what they're going to do with what you've given. That and, and it translates. My son and I, when he was little, we always would go and get ten and twenty dollar bills, and we just give them out. Our our poor area is called the Canal District, and in in this very wealthy enclave, Marin County. And you give people that look like they're really down and out a $10 bill and a bottle of water. And you don't ask what they're going to spend the money on. You know, Jesus goes around healing people of of blindness and he doesn't ask them what they plan to look at for the rest of their lives. You know, my son, as an adult, would go around and he'd give people, homeless guys on the street, um, a buck, a bottle of water, a cigarette and a book of matches. And he'd say, I'm glad to see you. You take care. He wouldn't say, promise me you won't buy a beer with this, you know, if you need a beer, buy a beer.
0: And yet I I have to go back to forgiveness and your family, because there is some clear, thinly veiled contempt that you have for your upbringing. Have you forgiven your parents
2: I absolutely forgave them every step of the way because I was their kid, you know, and I didn't desert them. My mom, my dad died of brain cancer when I was in my mid-20s. My mom died of Alzheimer's. I took care of them every step of the way. I loved them the best I could, but it doesn't make any sense to say that it um, was okay that they told me this stuff about myself that was um, absolutely crippling. But, and what did make sense was to see what they had done and shared and given me that was so beautiful, and to release them to the mess they'd made of their own lives and to get to work on on restoring the garden of my own life. You know. My parents were intellectuals. I and they taught me to, they raised me to be a voracious reader. They taught me to be a conversationalist and to love deep conversations about books and movies and poems. They taught me to love poetry. And those are huge gifts that have made me who I am. They also was the 50s and they taught me to be a sensitive child was a disaster and I needed to get thicker skin. Well, that's basically saying to your kid, if you were a completely different person, we'd all be a lot happier with you and, and you'll do much better in the world. And they taught me, you know, they didn't help me feel that I was beautiful or that because I was so sensitive that that was a wonderful way to be. Um, they tried to get me to be a really different person and they also you know they thought i was fabulous some of the time but it was that um inconsistency that you know with, with lab rats you can make lab rats crazy with inconsistency because if you always give them rewards cocaine or chocolate or m&ms they figure out the system if they do this and they get the reward if you always mistreat them they figure it out don't do that anymore but if you shake it up, and sometimes you get the M&Ms, and sometimes you get the electrical shock, you can induce mental illness in them, and then you can treat them with what the latest antidepressant is and see if it works effectively, you know? And so I feel a little bit like that lab rat where I got very, very mixed signals, and I got a lot of M&Ms, and I got sent to my room without eating a lot. I got a lot of electric shocks, and then I got out of that, I got out of that cage, you know, when, they, when, uh, when I got sober, I got out of the cage and the healing, the deep, deep layer, you know, going deep into those archaeological layers of, of bad feelings about myself really began.
0: You write rather intimately that the one time you saw your father cry was when his best friend of 40 years passed away and he finally told you how afraid he was to die. Do you remember that moment?
2: I literally remember the underside of the canopy of trees above us. I remember what my father was wearing. He was wearing an L.L. Bean those Norwegian fisherman sweaters that are almost navy blue with the white flecks through them. Yeah, but I'm a writer, you know, and and like Henry James said, um, a writer is someone on whom nothing is lost. And my father was a writer and he taught me, you pay attention, you know, you get it down, you do it as a habit, you write badly when you can't, and then you write, make it all a little bit better and you take notes. And so every step of the way, since I was a little kid, I've been taking notes.
0: How do you take notes on someone's fear of dying?
2: Well, in my last book, the Hope book, um, a, a friend of mine who's considerably older, 80, had come to me and said her daughter was just petrified of death and just thought of and she was um, much much younger. She was, I guess it was her granddaughter. She was in her late twenties and she just thought about it all the time. and, and a couple of friends had died and and uh, and it was kind of ruining her life. And so I and I just I took it on on to write a piece that would express why I'm really not afraid of death at all. And I went for a walk with this friend one day and we talked about it and I got it down you know there's this bad voice inside of you that says well if it's important you'll remember it but it wasn't true then and believe me as a as an older woman it didn't 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 become true after menopause so what you do is you know you get it all down and bird by bird it says the first draft you get it all down the second it's a kid's draft the second draft it's the adult draft. You clean it all up. And the third draft is a dental draft. You go tooth by tooth, wiggling and jiggling and flossing, and you see which tooth needs help, which is just fine. And I do that. And so I would take notes that were 20 pages worth of notes on an essay on, on why I'm not afraid of death. And then that gets reduced to a 10-page, 12-page essay. And then it gets reduced and reduced and reduced to the essay that then I can present to you and say, here, got a minute.
0: Unfortunately, the pandemic has has forced all of us to actively consider our own mortality. Or rather, I'll speak for myself. It's forced me. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about turning 67, you said, yikes, which I interpreted as, yikes, is it ending soon?
2: No, that's not what I said. I'm I'm 67 next month. So I'm still a very, very young sixty six. But um, the book was originally called The Third Third because there's just so much grace in myopia. You know, there's grace in having less energy to race around doing meaningless things.
0: And that's kind of what I'm asking for, I guess. My sort of humble ask to you is, can you share some of that grace in your third third
2: Well, you know, I'm not trying to blow you off, but the whole book is is what I learned and what I know and what I wanted to include in a book. But, you know, the whole book is really about how we, uh, you you really don't need to get a terminal diagnosis to start getting serious about how you're going to live your life, uh, what stuff is going to really hasn't turned out to be meaningful or profound, and that maybe you're going to stop doing less. You're going to start doing less and other stuff that you really, really want to pursue, but you don't know. You, Sam, don't know that you have 10 more years, you know, and you might want to get serious about meditation. You might want to get serious about you want to do it. You can't. My my writing students, I used to have these big classes. They spent the whole class explaining how they weren't currently writing. But as soon as and as soon as as soon as they retired, as soon as the last kid moved out of the house, they were going to start writing, and I was, would say, You know, if you're not doing it now, you're not going to do it then because it's like thinking you're going to be really uh, have good self respect once you lose 20 pounds. And I, you know, you're not if you don't if you don't if you're not loving yourself at 170, you're not going to love yourself at 150. So it's an inside job, and there is only the now. And you push back your sleeves and you have the conversation with yourself, Who am I? I am going to die. That is our common drama how am I going to live in the face of that the great spiritual teacher Carolyn Mace had a thing 10 years ago about how every day you get a hundred dollars in your psychic bank account and you and you have free will and you get to spend it however you want you can spend it stoned you can spend it um, having lunch with someone you really can't stand who that who that you really think you should um, and that you have to and so you're going to do it she said have that lunch but that's going to cost you $17 so now you're going to go to the gym because you're feeling a little fat even though you went to the gym the day before and even though that feeling good about yourself is an inside job you can go to the gym an extra day and put yourself through that but that's going to cost you $11 so now you're down to 73 minus 11 is what 62 you've spent all this money and you haven't spent it on on nutrition you know on food and water and soul food and you and so you start to get very conscious of how you're going to spend your hundred dollars every day and little by little it starts to translate into a life that is so much more fully and authentically lived that when the idea that you may die someday comes you think yeah well that's true but wow look at how beautiful those daffodils are this morning. You know these, and you start saying wow a lot more because you're paying attention to the holy day, the holy moment. And so instead of getting one more stupid thing done today, like you have to go to the store to get graph paper today or some new moist towelettes because you're almost out. Instead of that, you you walk around in your, lo- your yard and you look at the little green shoots and you, there is a calla lily in my yard. It's very early for the lilies, and you look at it and you, it makes you laugh. So it becomes a way of living. It becomes the the decision you make about the path that, that you choose to be on from now on 80% of the time.
0: And how do you think you've done?
2: Mm, well, 80% amazingly, mostly because of being on the path of sobriety, which is a very well-lit path with unbelievably wise and sometimes funny companions and um and I think with my son I I did 80 percent of a great job and I you know I'm still he's 100 feet away with his son who he had at 19 and who I love I love the two of them more than anything else about life really and I think I did an 80 percent really good job of raising him and we you know he certainly wants to bring up the other 20 percent and I, I don't automatically think that I'm a defective mother, but I—it I, grieves me, all parent. It grieves all parents the mistakes you made. You know, I have 19 books published. I, I wrote each one the very best I could at the time. Sometimes I look back at them and I kind of go, ay, ay, I, what was I thinking?" But I have had a magical, mystical connection. To the earth and to my beloved communities and when all is said and done that's what's mattered most to me.
0: Anne Lamott, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you so much Sam.
0: that's our show. Special thanks this week to Shalane Tavella, Leanna Cohen, and Ashley Garland. Anne's new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, is available wherever you do your reading. To learn more about her and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations with writers, I'd recommend our talks with Elizabeth Gilbert, George Saunders, Claudia Rankin, Gloria Steinem, Miranda July, and Fran Lebowitz. You can find all those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel and Kevin Kaur. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gamberzak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Isabel Primavera. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back Wednesday with a bonus episode featuring Nathaniel Rich. Until then, stay safe and so long.
1: Enter now at tmobile.com/slash slash awards. See you there.
0: Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast,
1: The Assignment with Audie Cornish.
0: Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The
1: Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.